Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. You can open your Bibles to the book of John, chapter 11, this morning. Before we get into the text, just a couple of things I want to make note of. Um, I just returned from Greensboro, North Carolina. I was there during this past week attending our denomination's General Assembly. It's the annual business meeting of our church, uh, of our denomination, I should say, Presbyterian Church in America, PCA. It's always an honor and privilege to do the work of the church at the national level, and so I'm very grateful for the opportunity uh, to go and attend uh, that meeting. I'm going to be writing a blog about what happened at General Assembly this past week, rather than taking too much time here this morning to explain to you, a lot happened over the course of the entire week, so keep an eye out for that blog, and I will update you on some of the decisions that were made last week at General Assembly. Now, Felix mentioned, and I'm just going to repeat it because it's such uh, an important event in the life of our church, that's next Sunday, which um, we might call Church Planting Sunday. We've got a very significant event taking place. During the Sunday morning sermon, I'm going to be delivering a message just reminding us of the importance of planting churches and particularly why we as a local congregation are planting a church. And then on Sunday evening next Sunday, as Felix has already told us, we will be ordaining Josh Hollowell into gospel ministry as well as commissioning our very first church plant, City Hope Fellowship, who will be worshiping in downtown Muncie eventually under um, Josh's leadership. So this whole process is the culmination of a lot of years of planning and praying and patience as we have been preparing for this new congregation. And so make sure you're here next Sunday. Very important for you to be here both in the morning and evening services so we can encourage the Hollowells and those that we are sending out for the sake of God's kingdom in the city of Muncie. A great time of celebration um, for us as a congregation and for the new work that God is preparing. So that's Sunday morning, 1030, but then the Sunday evening service, 6 p.m. Invite people to come and join us and celebrate what God's doing. John chapter 11 is where we're going to be considering thinking, reflecting this morning. Uh, I just recently finished a very good book called When Breath Becomes Air by a guy named Paul Kalanithi. Anybody read this book? Yeah? One one person? Okay, good. So this will be a surprise to to the majority of you. Um, Very popular book, New York Times bestseller. Um, The author, Paul Kalanithi, was a uh, very gifted neurosurgeon, um, but also uh, a writer and a thinker and uh, a philosopher, a guy who was driven his whole life to understand the meaning of life. That was just something that he felt compelled to investigate, and it was one of the reasons why he became a neurosurgeon, so that he could apply his medical skills to the reality of death, which he knew that he be facing regularly in his profession. And throughout the book, we we see how he was able to 
rescue many people from death through his um, surgical skills. There were some lives that he saved, but we learn in the book that there were some lives that he couldn't save. But in all of these cases, these were always somebody else's life that he was dealing with, somebody else who was facing death. And all of that changed for Paul Kalanithi when he was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer in his mid-30s, a very rare form of cancer. And once he was diagnosed, he decided to commit himself to writing this book and explaining how he dealt with his forthcoming death, which he was quite sure uh, was certain. And so just from one quote from the book here early on, he says this, I had planned to do so much and I had come so close. I was physically debilitated. My imagined future and my personal identity collapsed and I faced the same existential quandaries that my patients faced. So many of his patients were dealing with the reality of death, and he was kind of helping them through that, and now he was the one dealing with that. Death, so familiar to me in my work, was now paying a personal visit. Now, for some of you, death has paid a personal visit to you in one form or another. Death has entered your household and your family through the loss of parents or the loss of spouse or the loss of children in some cases. Um, others of you maybe haven't had death visit you in quite that way, but one thing is for sure, if death hasn't visited you yet, it will, either through your loved ones or perhaps through your own death. And the question that Paul Kalanithi is raising in this book, powerful book, very well written, I recommend it to you, is how to die well. That's what Paul Kalanithi wanted to do. He wanted to die with integrity. He wanted to die with courage. He wanted to die with grace. And that's something I think every Christian should consider. Will I be able to die well? When my time comes, will I die well? Now, I know that's kind of a morbid thought, and uh, maybe some of you are a little bit depressed by that consideration. I would say this, that one of the jobs of the preacher of the gospel is not only to encourage and instruct and inspire through the gospel, but also in some cases to force us to think about things that we would otherwise like to ignore. And it seems like Americans in particular are very good at ignoring death averting our gaze from it and wishing it would just go away. But today is a day when we're going to look at this head on as we finish our sermon series on how to make sense of life. We've been for the last couple of months just considering various questions that come to people's minds in all time periods and all cultures throughout history, basic questions that everybody faces. What's the meaning of life? Is there any such thing as truth? Who am I? What is my identity? And today, we're going to seek to make sense of the reality of death. Everybody dies. Everybody in history has had to face death. Everybody has had to wrestle with this painful and scary reality. And so we're in John chapter 11 today, and we're going to be looking at a pretty famous story, one that perhaps many of you are familiar with, the story of a guy named Lazarus. 
Lazarus lived in a city called Bethany. Lazarus was a friend of Jesus. Lazarus had a couple of sisters, Mary and Martha. And we learn early in John chapter 11 that Lazarus became ill. And so upon learning this, Mary and Martha called upon Jesus, asked Jesus to come. And we read that Jesus decided to delay his coming. He didn't come right away. And um, in the meantime, while Jesus was delaying, this friend of his, Lazarus, died. And eventually, Jesus decided to go to Bethany in response to the request of Mary and Martha. And so that's where we're going to pick up this account in verse 17 of John 11. Jesus has just arrived, and we see this conversation that he has with his friend Martha. So please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read John 11, 17 to 27. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Father, we ask for your Holy Spirit to open our eyes and soften our hearts that we might behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So here's what we're doing today. We're looking at the scriptures to try to make sense of death, and in particular to try to help us to face our deaths with integrity, to prepare to die well. So the first thing that I want to show you is this. Death is a tragedy that affects everyone. Death is a tragedy that affects everyone. Now, that might seem obvious um, that death affects everyone, but it might not be so obvious to some people that death is a tragedy. Actually, not everyone even agrees that death is a tragedy. Everybody has been seeking to deal with the reality of death, even people who are not Christians, and those who are not Christians don't have a hope in an afterlife, so non-Christians have to wrestle with death in another way. And what a lot of contemporary writers have been doing lately with this topic of death is reasoning this way. What they'll say is death is really not any big deal. Death is just a part of the story. Death is not to be feared. Death is nothing unusual. Death is just a natural part of what everybody faces. There's a British writer named Diana Athill. She's 96 years old, clearly facing her death sometime in the near future. And the article she wrote was titled this, It's Silly to be Frightened of Being Dead. 
She says death is not the end of life. Death is just part of life. So she says she's not afraid of death at all. And many reason this way. It's, it's not a bad thing. It's not a surprising thing. It's not anything that anybody should be bothered about or afraid of. There's an ancient philosopher named Epicurus who reasoned like this. He said, either you're alive and death is somewhere else, or you're dead and you don't know it. So why worry? Why worry about being dead, about death, about facing your death? The picture we see here in John chapter 11 is is very different. And I think it's much closer to reality. And that's what this whole sermon series has been about, trying to make sense of the way things really are in the world in which we live and the lives that we are seeking to navigate. And what we find in John chapter 11 is that death hits people hard. Death is devastating. So we might ask this question. I mentioned a moment ago, why did Jesus delay for a couple of days? Why didn't he come when Mary and Martha asked him to come? Jesus could have come and could have healed Lazarus and he never would have had to have died. So why did he delay? And I think one of the reasons is so that Mary and Martha and all the people who loved Lazarus could truly experience the painful reality of death. It says here at the beginning of verse 17, when Jesus came, he found Lazarus had already been dead in the tomb four days. Jesus wanted to make sure that it was very clear, Lazarus is dead. He's not in a coma. He's not unconscious. The man is dead. He wanted to allow time for his loved ones to have to wrestle with that. He, he wanted this, the pain and the sorrow of death to sink deep into the hearts of these people. Those of you who have lost loved ones know what it's like. There's that initial shock of hearing about the passing of someone you love. But when you wake up the next morning, you relive it. You know, you wake up and it doesn't really occur to you. And then the reality of this death hits you and you have to relive it all over again. And you go through that day and you go to sleep that night and you wake up the next morning and you relive it again. And as these days continue to go on, it begins to sink in that this is true. This loved one is never coming back. And what Jesus wanted to do is allow Mary and Martha in particular to experience that reality. Lazarus is gone. And he's not coming back. And there's no hope. He wants death to become real. And we see, as we go on through this passage, that the people here are mourning in a very specific and pronounced way. Verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. Verse 19, many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. This was very common practice in Jewish culture. It was actually an essential obligation of Jewish people to go to those who were mourning and to spend time with them as they mourned the loss of their loved one. In fact, it's a practice called Shiva, S-H-I-V-A, where the people were expected to stay with the mourners for an entire week to help them through the pain and the grief that they would be experiencing. Those who would be mourning this loss of life would then commit themselves to abstaining from normal, regular, common life pleasures for a full year after the loved one had passed away as a way of properly acknowledging the tragedy of death. 
I think Mary and Martha would profoundly disagree with Diana Athel, the woman who says death is no big deal, it's just a natural part of life. Mary and Martha would say, well, that might be your view, but in our experience right here on the ground, as I'm mourning the loss of my brother, I can tell you death hurts, death is painful, death is devastating. We, we all know this instinctively. Death is not normal. There's something, I would say, probably the most troubling and unsettling experience that we can go through in life is to lay eyes on a dead body. Particularly to lay eyes on the dead body of someone who was close to you, someone that you have loved, a spouse, a mother, a father, a child. Is there anything more troubling than that? A lifeless body that was once alive, walking on this earth, full of personality, full of kindness, grace, and goodness, and humor, and now stone cold and lifeless. There's nothing more troubling than that. Life is meant to be lived. Death is an intrusion. Death is, some, is a disorder. Death is unnatural. Death, according to 1 Corinthians 15, is our enemy. This is the Christian view of death, not something to be just swept under the carpet as if it's no big deal. I quoted a couple of weeks ago a guy named Luke Ferry. He's a professor of philosophy at the University of Paris. And um, Luke Ferry's not a Christian, but he wrote this book, The History of Thought, where he gave a brief overview of all the systems of, of philosophical thought throughout human history. And he begins the book by saying that basically the whole endeavor of philosophy in trying to find the meaning of life is driven by the fact that death exists and we don't know what to do with it. That's why people reflect on why they exist and what life really means. Here's what um, Luke Ferry says. I think we have some troubles with our slides. Brad, can you advance that for me, please? You're working on it? Okay. <laughs> well, what do we do now? <laughs> I suppose I could try to recite the quote from some kind of memory. I think what Luke Ferry said in this part is something like um, that... Um, just summarizing what I just said about how death is what is driving us all to try to figure out why we exist and what meaning is all about in this life. I'm quoting here uh, Luke Ferry a little later. Um, oh yeah, here's what he said. He said, um, he said, he said, we all, we, we all have loved ones, people that we care about deeply, people who we're very close to, and what shocks us the most is when they die. And the one thing that we're all longing for in life is for those people not to die and for us not to die as well. That, that's the fundamental longing that all human beings have, to not only avoid our own death, but to avoid the deaths of those who are close to us. Okay, here it is. What do we truly desire above all else? To be understood, to be loved, not to be alone, not to be separated from our loved ones. In short, not to die and not to have them die on us. 
That was pretty close, right, my summary? Pretty close? Isn't that true? That, that, that's what we want at our most fundamental level, is to not have our loved ones die on us and to not die ourselves. A guy named uh, um, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, philosopher from the 18th century, um, his quote is supposed to be on the screen as well. Uh, but uh, this one is easier for me to, to remember. What he said was, anybody who says he's not afraid of death is a liar. <laughs> Friends, the way to make sense of death is not to try to make it less tragic than it is. Death is every bit as bad as you think it is. And there's a certain natural fear trepidation we have as we consider the fact that one day death will visit us. My question to you friends is are you ready for that? Are you ready for that day when death pays you a visit? Second point that I want to show you after that morbid first point, our second point is this. Death has been overcome in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now we see this in this conversation that Jesus and Martha have together as the passage continues. Verse 21, Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, I don't really think this is a, a rebuke that Martha is offering Jesus, not a criticism. This is more Martha expressing her hope in Jesus. She has confidence that Jesus can do something about problems like illnesses and death. And we see that confirmed in verse 22. She says, even now I know that when, whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So Martha here is expressing Jesus, you know, if you just would have been here, you might have been able to ward off this problem. And then Jesus says in verse 23, this kind of striking phrase, your brother will rise again. Now, in Jewish thought, there were different views of the resurrection depending on what kind of um, group that you belonged to. There was a group called the Sadducees. The Sadducees actually did not believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in an afterlife at all. But there was another group called the Pharisees, and they believed in an end-time resurrection for the nation of Israel, that all Israel at the end of time would be resurrected. And that seems to be the view that Martha holds here. Because after Jesus says, your brother will rise again, in verse 24, Martha says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. But Jesus has something very different in mind here. And so he goes on here in verse 25, and this is the whole highlight of the passage. Jesus says, I'm not here to affirm either of these views. There's something very different that I am bringing to you. And so in verse 25, he says this. I am the resurrection and the life, Martha, and whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. So Jesus says here, look, I'm not telling you about some kind of end-time general resurrection. I'm not telling you to put your hope in the nation of Israel. I'm not telling you to, to follow me and live as best as you can and then hope that one day you've done well enough so that you can be resurrected. I, I'm not trying to just kind of give you some paradigm, some kind of view of the world that will give you some kind of vague hope as you look to the end of life and as you get ready to face your death. What Jesus says is, 
I am your only hope, Martha, for life after death. Resurrection power is found in me, in my person, not in a way of life, not in a doctrine, not in a belief system, but in the person of Jesus Christ. Martha here is thinking, yeah, I've got, you know, I know something's going to happen at the end of the age, maybe a vague belief like, yeah, I believe in miracles, kind of a general optimism. And what Jesus wants to do is pull her out of that and point her attention directly to him as the only hope that anybody has in facing death. There's this passage in the book, um, When Breath Becomes Air, Paul Kalanithi uh, once he'd been diagnosed with cancer, he was, of course, assigned his own doctor. And there's a place where he and his doctor are talking about how much time he has left. And the doctor had been kind of avoiding telling him this, and, and eventually she says to him, you've probably got about five years. And the way Paul describes this is that he just, he just knew that, that that was way too optimistic. And it turns out he didn't even have one year. But here were two doctors, two people who were the most skilled at fighting death, dealing with death, warding off death, delivering some people from death. Doctors, those are the people we look to when we face death. But even doctors run out of options. And that's what was happening with Paul and his doctor. And he ends this passage by saying, doctors, it turns out, need hope too. Even those most able to deal with death finally face it square in the face. Death always wins, Paul says. You can deliver people through one surgery, through one operation, through one medical treatment, but eventually death comes back and gets the upper hand. What Jesus is saying here is that there is a hope. There is one way to be able to look death in the face and not be overwhelmed with fear and discouragement. It's in Jesus Christ. He is the resurrection and the life. We know later on here in the story that what Jesus is going to do is he's going to raise Lazarus out of the tomb. But what's going to happen is that Lazarus is going to die again. Lazarus today is still dead. Lazarus' bones are in a tomb somewhere. He was risen from the dead, but he died again. So when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, he's not talking about Lazarus' resurrection. He's talking about his resurrection, a very different resurrection. And we learn about that later on in the gospel where Jesus goes to a cross and he lays down his life. He pays the penalty for sins. He takes upon himself the condemnation that we deserve and he is risen from the dead and he will never die again. Jesus is alive at this very moment. People ask that question sometimes. What happened when Jesus was raised out of the tomb and ascended to the Father? He is alive. He didn't disappear. He didn't die again. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's reigning over the universe. A resurrected Lord who will never die, who has overcome the powers of death. Here's what uh, Hebrews 2 says. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong death slavery.
What this passage is saying, friends, is this. Through hope in the resurrection of Jesus, you can face death with courage, not with fear, not with panic, not with depression. Yes, I mean, death is hard. I don't want to try to minimize the pain, the sadness, and the difficulty of death. I I don't want to try to act like it's wrong to grieve or to experience those kinds of painful emotions. But in the end, Christians ought to be able to look death in the face and smile. And that's what Hebrews 2 is telling us is true for Christians. Luke Ferry, one more time, this philosopher from Paris. This guy's not a believer, by the way, not a Christian. And he says this, the Christian response to mortality, for believers at least, (laughs) he doesn't count himself among them, is without question the most effective of all responses. It would seem to be the only version of salvation that enables us not only to transcend the fear of death, but also to beat death itself. That's what we have as Christians, friends. We have something nobody else has. No other religion, no other way of life, no other philosophy, because we have a Savior who is dead and now lives. Death has been overcome in Jesus' resurrection. So the last thing I'm going to leave you with is this. The time, friends, to prepare for your death is now. Now, I know some of you might be thinking, I'm a young person. I'm probably not going to be dead for 60 or 70 years. And that might be true. But you don't know that. You might be dead before the day is up. The time to prepare for your death is now. No matter how healthy you are, no matter how strong you are, no matter how young you are, now is the time. And that's what Jesus does at the end of this passage. He gives Martha an opportunity after he explains this information about how Jesus is the resurrection and the life at the end of verse 26. He says to Martha, do you believe this? Do you believe what I'm telling you, Martha, that I am the resurrection, that everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die? Now, Jesus is is not saying that we're going to avoid death in this life. If you look back at verse 25, he says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. So if Jesus doesn't come back before your death, you will experience death at some point in this life. But what Jesus is saying is that he's going to come back one day and raise up from the tombs every single person and those who are trusting in him will then be ushered into an eternity of resurrected glorified bodily life with Jesus and all of his people on a glorified new earth but what Jesus is doing is presenting to Martha the opportunity He's he's theologizing, he's telling Martha about himself and the reality of the resurrection, and then he poses to her that question, do you believe this? You notice he doesn't say, have you been a good person lately, Martha? Have you been going to temple lately, Martha? How have your prayers been, Martha? How often have you fasted, Martha? Are you a good Jew? Are you a good religious person, Martha? He doesn't ask that. He says, do you believe this? Do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? And of course, we see what Martha's response to that is. Verse 27, yes, Lord, I believe it. 
I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And this passage just begs us to answer, to ask that same question. Do, do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Now is the time to wrestle with that. And your decision about who Jesus is and whether you're going to entrust yourself to him is the very first and most important step for you to take in preparation for your death. Turning and trusting in him. Later on in the book, when breath becomes air, Paul Kalanithi mentioned at one point that he used to be an ironclad atheist. But he said, particularly as he dealt with his forthcoming death and searching for the meaning of life, he said the problem was his atheism and science by itself couldn't make sense of life in this earth. The whole theme of this sermon series is what this guy says in this book. It just it doesn't make sense of things. It doesn't make sense of my love for my family and my longing for meaning and my desire to transcend death and the limitations on this earth. These atheistic viewpoints don't make sense. And so what Paul said is he returned to his Christianity. He said he found the whole idea of redemption and forgiveness and sacrifice compelling and gave himself to Christ. And at the very end of the book, it's a very powerful passage that was written by his wife. Paul passed away before he could finish the book. And so his wife finished it for him. And she said this, Paul's decision to look death in the eye was a testament, not just to who he was in the final hours of his life, but to who he had always been. Paul wondered about death and whether he could face it with integrity. In the end, the answer was yes. I was his wife and a witness. When you die, and assuming the people are able to witness that, what will they say about the way you will die? The time to prepare for that is now. Turning to Jesus, receiving him as Savior and Lord, now, but not just that. Once that is done, if it hasn't been done already, you should do that. Once that is done, abiding in Jesus, seeking Jesus in preparation for your last day. You know, Jesus gives us the grace to live well, but he also gives us the grace to die well. And one of the ways that we prepare to die well is in the very same way we prepare to live well. As we look to our last day, we give ourselves to the Word of God. We read the Bible. We study the Bible. We cherish the Bible. We get the Word into our heart now so that the Word will reign through us then on that last day. We, we, we stick close to God in prayer. We speak to Him now. Every day, you pray to God. You praise Him. You give your request to Him. You confess your sins to Him. You ask for blessings from Him. You do that now, every day, so that you'll do it then, on your last day. If you're not praying now, you're not in the Word now, what makes you think you're going to be doing that when you're lying in a hospital bed, half drugged up and full of pain? The time to prepare for how you're going to die is now. Reading the Word, praying to God, 
cherishing the resurrection, meditating on this beautiful passage that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life, thinking about it, rejoicing in it, telling yourself, reminding yourself that of all the problems that you have, they all pale in comparison to the problem of death, and the problem of death has been taken care of for you. Meditate on the resurrection. Cherish it now so that you'll cherish it then on your last day. The time to prepare is now. Cling to the resurrection now. Cherish it now. And you'll be able to look death in the eye on that last day and say, Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? should be the call of all believers and followers in this resurrected Savior. Let's pray. Our Father, we confess that death sometimes overwhelms us, fills us with fear and dread, but Lord Jesus, we thank you. There is hope in our resurrected Savior. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for this passage in John chapter 11. Help us to abide by you. Help us to cherish your resurrection until that day when you call us home. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.